If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible, take your phone, whatever you might have, and turn to Acts chapter 17. Go ahead and throw my slide up there, if you don't mind. Give ourselves a little bit of a running start on this. This is Paul on his second missionary journey. Um, if you're not familiar with the New Testament at all, the Apostle Paul was a man who hated Christianity, but he came to be a follower of Jesus, and God raised him up to be one who would take the gospel further and further out to the remotest parts of the world in the language of the book of Acts. And this is on his second missionary journey that we're studying right now through the book of Acts. It started over here in Antioch, revisited Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidia Antioch. Those were the churches planted on the first missionary journey. And then they came further west and the Lord said no. Turn north, the Lord said no. And they came to Troas. And from here, they received a vision. Paul did. A vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke came to Philippi. They planted a church in Philippi. Then on to Thessalonica, planted a church here. Then down to Berea. That's what we looked at last week. The noble-minded Bereans who searched the Scriptures. And now they've come down to Antioch. You remember from last week, the persecutors from Thessalonica heard that Paul had come to Berea, so they came to Berea, stirred things up, and Paul had to leave. And he comes to Athens. And that's where we are this morning. As I think about this sermon and as I've looked at it all week long, one word comes to mind, and it's urgency. Urgency. We're going to see Paul's urgency. We're going to see the Athenians' lack of urgency. At least that's what it seems like to me. And then we're going to see the gospel's urgency. So Paul's urgency, the lack of urgency among the Athenians, and then the gospel's urgency. Let's take a look at it in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Paul came to Athens, and Athens was an incredible city, but a city full of idols. One set a veritable forest of idols. Almost everywhere you looked, an idol to this God and an idol to that God, to Zeus or to Hermes or to Jupiter or to Mars. They were everywhere. We'll see down, some of them made of gold and some of silver and some of stone. Idols. Worship of idols. He observed it in verse 16, maybe a, a little bit stronger word than simply saw them. He observed them. Down in verse 22, when he gets a chance to speak, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of worship. So Paul saw them, but then he thought about them. 
He pondered it. Maybe even prayed about it. All of these idols and all of the worship of these idols. But what was missing was worship of King Jesus. And it provoked him. His spirit was being provoked within him. Others say he was being vexed. Others, indignation. Others, even righteous anger. Here was all of this worship, but none the worship of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as a result of it, what does Paul do? He doesn't, well, verse 17, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Down in verse, the end of verse 18, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul saw or observed the idolatry. He felt the indignation for the trampled glory of God. And he began to proclaim Jesus. That they might repent of their idolatry, begin to glorify God, and as we will see, escape the judgment. It's a whole lot harder to see, it seems, but the same may well be happening around us. Idol worship abounds. Tim Keller, pastor up in New York, has written about this quite a bit. He defines an idol as anything that is more important to you or to me than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Keller would agree with John Calvin who wrote, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forger of idols. We might not carve them out of stone or out of gold or silver. We might not put them up on the wall and bow down to them. We create them in our minds. Things that are more important to us than God. Things that absorb our heart and our imagination more than God. Things we seek to give us what only God can give us. Keller goes on to define it. If I, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Not if I have God. But if I have that, and he names a number of them, if I have power and influence over others, he calls that power idolatry. If I am loved and respected by so-and-so, that's approval idolatry. 
if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of control idolatry, if people are dependent on me and need me, it's helping idolatry. Someone that is there to protect me and keep me safe, dependence idolatry. If I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone else, independence idolatry. If I'm highly productive and getting a lot done, work idolatry. If I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work, achievement idolatry. If I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions, materialism idolatry. If I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities, religion idolatry. This one person, if this one person in my life is happy to be there or is happy with me, individual person idolatry. If I feel I'm totally independent of organized religion and I'm living a self-made morality, irreligion idolatry. My race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior, racial or cultural idolatry. If a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in, the inner ring idolatry. If my children and or my parents are happy and are happy with me, family idolatry. If Mr. and Mrs. Wright is in love with me, relationship idolatry. I'm almost done. If I am hurting in a problem, only then do I feel worthy of love or able to, feel, to deal with guilt. Suffering idolatry. If my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence or power. Ideology. Idolatry. The last one he lists. If I have a particular kind of look or body image. Image. Idolatry. The list could probably go on and on if indeed Calvin is right that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forger of idols. Probably we only need to look to our own heart to know that while we don't have little wooden idols or golden idols or silver idols sitting in our house to which we bow down, there are things that we love more than God, that we look to, to meet our needs. Idolatry abounds in our own hearts and certainly in our own city. People looking elsewhere rather than God to find life, to find meaning, to find significance. So we could say with Paul, there's all kinds of worship. But not the worship of King Jesus. And does that move us as it did Paul? He had a sense of urgency as he looked around. He was jealous for the glory of God. He wanted people to glorify God, to worship God, to find in God their sense of meaning and significance and love and the like. But rather than worship God and submit their lives to God and to his ways, they were looking all 
elsewhere. Read you a little bit from, and I, and I will again if there's time allows. Great book, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. Here's how he opens this book. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. Psalm 97.1, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 67, let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So that's the goal of missions. It's that the nations, that people, that your neighbors and mine, that people all over our city and all over the world who worship so many things other than Christ would worship Him. That's the goal. But it's also the fuel. Worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You cannot commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. Missions begins and ends in worship. If the pursuit of God's glory is not ordered above the pursuit of man's good in the affections of the heart and the priorities of the church, man will not be well served and God will not be duly honored. I am not pleading for a diminishing of missions but for a magnifying of God. When the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worship, I'm sorry, when the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, the light of missions will shine to the most remote peoples on earth. And I long for that day to come where passion for God is weak. Zeal for missions will be weak. Churches that are not centered on the exaltation of the majesty and beauty of God will scarcely kindle a fervent desire to declare His glory among the nations. Even outsiders feel the disparity between the boldness of our claim upon the nations and the blandness of our engagement with God. Paul did missions in verse 17. Why? Because worship did not exist. There were the worship of the idols but not the worship of the only true God. And he is zealous and jealous for the glory of God. He wants people to worship him and give him the glory and the honor and the praise that he and he alone deserves. Knowing that in him, people will find joy, 
and in him they will have everlasting gladness. May this kind of urgency be yours and mine. Paul was urgent for the glory of God, not so much the indifferent Athenians. Verse 18. So Paul is in the synagogues and he's with the God-fearing Gentile, with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and then he's out in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. In verse 18, also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, What would this idle babbler, babbler wish to say? Idle babbler, it's a the Greek word is spermologos, and it means a seed picker. It was used of birds who would go along and pick up seeds. And then it eventually came to be used of people who just pick up little ideas here, there, and everywhere, kind of throw them all together and spout them about. They were accusing Paul of being just that kind of a guy. What does this idle babbler, this seed picker, wish to say? Others... He seems to be a proclaimer of strange or foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, Pagos means hill. Ares, the god Mars. Ares, the god Mars. This is Mars Hill. This was a place there in Athens where... The, the people who were kind of the gatekeepers of the city would conduct business. And so these philosophers brought him to Mars Hill, to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, on the one hand, I think we could read this and go, wow, this is pretty neat. But I think verse 21, Luke kind of puts an aside in here. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. I'm not so sure these guys were serious truth seekers. I'm not so sure that they listened to Paul and thought, we got to hear more. He was a seed picker. He was proclaiming some new stuff. And they loved to listen to new stuff. They were curious. Maybe things were slow in Athens that week. Not so many guys had come through. And yet, here's a new fella with some new ideas. Cool, man. Come on down to Mars Hill and We'd love the other guys to have a listen. Maybe I'm wrong, but as I read this, I don't get a sense of urgency for the things of God. They're curious to hear more simply because they love to hear more. Paul uses a phrase elsewhere in the New Testament, always learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. I wonder if verse 21 is not meant to be a little bit funny from Luke to say, who were the real seed pickers here? 
they were accusing Paul of being a seed picker, just picking up ideas here and there and throwing them together and presenting his deal. And maybe Luke in verse 21 is saying, these were the real seed pickers. They weren't anxious for the truth. They just loved to hear something new so they could add it to whatever they heard last week. They were lost in their sea of idols and the lethargic seed picking of their own. They didn't seem to be urgent about things that really mattered. Not so sure there's much spiritual urgency in our city today either. And it's not just our city, it's all over American culture, it seems now. Concerned with the things of God, concerned with truth, concerned with matters of the soul seem to be far down the list of people's priorities. Certainly the priorities of people who do not know Christ, they do not wake up on Sunday mornings eager to be with the people of God, to worship God, and to hear from His Word. But even among God's people, the urgency can sometimes seem to fade. So many other things seem to stand in our way from white-hot worship of King Jesus. So many things seem to stand in our way of following hard after Christ. Well, Paul gets his opportunity. And in his message, I think he's going to share with us the gospel's urgency. Verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. I think he's just warming them up there a little bit. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And so they, they had idols everywhere. And the idols had names on them. So you knew to whom you were bowing down, to whom you were offering your worship. But for fear that they get them all, they had at least one, and there's evidence of probably even others, of idols to an unknown God. They weren't even sure who they were worshiping. But they wanted to make sure, if they could, to get them all. Paul is going to tap into their own open acknowledgement of their own ignorance. This is going to be his segue to proclaim the gospel. I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God, therefore, what you worship in ignorance... This I proclaim to you. And so Paul is going to give them the true God. And he's going to say a number of things about him. If you like to take notes, maybe right across from verse 24, write the Creator. 
the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Paul is going to turn their attention to the one true God, and the first thing he says about him is he's the creator of everything, and as such, he's the Lord of everything. And therefore, you cannot localize him to any one place. He doesn't dwell in these temples made with hands. Along with all of their idols, Athens was also full of temples, supposedly the residence of the deities. Paul says, listen, there's one true God. He's the creator of all things, and he's the Lord of all things. And we don't localize him or minimize him in any way. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. If you remember way back in the Old Testament, whenever David wanted to build God a house, and then Solomon was able to build God a house, the temple, in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon was dedicating that temple, he affirmed, God, we know that you do not dwell in houses. In fact, there's some evidence, if you're familiar with the temple, the Old Testament tabernacle, and then the temple, the holy place, and then behind the veil was the holy of holies, and in there was the, um, the ark of the covenant, that, that piece of furniture that had the mercy seat over it and the like. There's some evidence that that was merely to, to serve as the footstool of God's feet. That yes, that's where he dwelt, the Shekinah glory of God inside the Holy of Holies, but some believe it was merely meant to be the footstool of his feet because no house on earth can contain him. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 25, you might put sustainer. He's not only the creator of everything, but he's the sustainer of everything. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. You probably get the, uh, the image of people scurrying about there in Athens to meet the needs of their deities. And Paul reminded he's not the true God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The one who sustains all of life does not himself need us to sustain him. The one who supplies us with life and everything we need is not in need of us to supply him. In verse 26, you might put ruler. He's not just the creator, Paul says, not just the sustainer, but he's the ruler of the nations. He made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. So all of the nations, from Genesis 10 and 11 onward, absolutely ruled by God, when they would arise and when they would fall, and the boundaries of their habitation sovereignly determined by him. With the hope in verse 27 that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. 
God had made himself known to the nations. How does Paul put it in Romans chapter 1? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For that which is known about God is evident to them. For God made it evident in them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God nor give thanks but became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, and crawling creatures, idols. God established the nations that they would seek Him. But rather than seek Him, we turned away in our sin created our little idols to whom we would look to find life. Verse 28, you might write, Father, for in Him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also are His children. Being then the children of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Fathers, if you will, give life. And in verse 28, in him we live and move and exist. We are his offspring. We derive our life from Him and we are dependent on Him much as a child derives their life and are dependent upon their father. We are His children. And it is absurd that we, the children of this God from whom we have derived all of our life, would would make idols, create idols to replace Him. Verse 30. He who is the creator and the sustainer and the ruler and the father is also savior and judge. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Here's what I think this phrase means having overlooked the times of ignorance. Up until this time, God had created and established the nations that they might know Him, but the nations turned away from Him to idolatry. And God let them go into their idolatry. We read about it in Romans chapter 1, but also back in chapter 14, And Paul was in Lystra. In generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Into their rebellion and into their idolatry. God let them go. And I think this phrase means that he overlooked 
that he did not choose to pursue their repentance through the missionary activity of his people. Before Christ, the nations turning from God to idolatry to go their own way, God permitted them to go to their own way in his own wisdom and for his own purposes. And he did not pursue their repentance. And while his people Israel had somewhat of a missionary purpose to them, he did not move them to obedience to it. He overlooked. But now, he is declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Here's a little bit more on this. In his inspiring book, A Vision for Missions, Tom Wells tells the story of how William Carey illustrates this conviction in his own preaching. Carey was an English Baptist missionary who left for India in 1793. He never came home, but persevered for 40 years in the gospel ministry. Once he was talking, Carey was, with a Brahmin in 1797. The Brahmin was defending idol worship. And Carey cited Acts 14, 16, that God permitted the nations to go their own ways. And 1730, that God overlooked. God formerly allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, said Carey, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Indeed, said the native, I think God ought to repent for not sending the gospel sooner to us. Carey was not without an answer. He said, Suppose a kingdom had been long overrun by the enemies of its true king, and he, though possessed of sufficient power to conquer them, should yet allow them to prevail and establish themselves as much as they could desire. Would not the valor and the wisdom of that king be far more conspicuous, or would it, would it not come to light and be more clear? Would not the valor and the wisdom of that king be far more conspicuous in exterminating them than it would have been if he had opposed them at first and prevented their entering the country. Thus, by the diffusion of gospel light, the wisdom, power, and grace of God will be more conspicuous, more evident in overcoming such deep-rooted idolatries and in destroying all that darkness and vice which have so universally prevailed in this country than they would have been if all had not been suffered or allowed to walk in their own ways for so many past ages. Piper then comments, Carey's answer to why God allowed nations to walk in their own ways is that in doing so, the final victory of God will be all the more glorious. There is a divine wisdom in the timing of God's deliverances from darkness we should humble ourselves to see it rather than presume to know better how God should deal with a rebellious world. So God is the creator, the sustainer, the ruler, the father, and he's the savior. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, 
that all people everywhere should repent. This, we can read Paul's little sermon here in two minutes. Certainly he said much more, and certainly he would have made Jesus clear, it seems to me. Up in verse 18, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was proclaiming that now in Jesus Christ, they could be saved. And they need to be, because of verse 31, he's the judge. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. I'm not positive I read this account right, but as I read it, Paul was urgent for the glory of God. And yet these Athenians in their idolatry were not so urgent about their souls. They were just seed pickers. They just loved to learn something new. And yet Paul says this gospel is urgent. Your idols are but silver and gold and stone. There's only one true God. He's the creator, the sustainer, the ruler. He's the father of us all by creation. He's the savior who has sent his son into the world. And now you need to repent because a day of judgment is most assuredly coming. It's time to go, but I want to read some scripture to you and then we will pray. From James chapter 4, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. In other words, you may die today. Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And Jesus said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. He began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Fool. This very night your soul is required of you. Unless Christ returns, every one of us in the room will face death. It is appointed to man to die once and after that to face judgment. 
and Christ is going to return. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, lest we read verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed. Lest we think this idea of the judgment of God upon rebellious people is maybe not a main theme. 2 Thessalonians 1, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Romans chapter 2. Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul is talking to people who see the sins of others and look down on them and think themselves to be okay. They're morally better than others, and so God is good with them. Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Apparently they were thinking, God hasn't judged me yet, so must be cool. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness? An unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning willfully and receiving the knowledge of the truth, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? The idea seems to be of, of trampling underfoot the Son of God is to say of Jesus Christ, he is nothing to me. He's not the Son of God who died on the cross for sinners like me. No. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, it's time to go. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Friends, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? He's the hope for the escape from judgment because here's the reality. He came from heaven to earth to be judged for you. To take in himself the judgment that was meant for you and me. 
He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He is, the Apostle John said, a propitiation in his blood. That's a fancy word for a satisfaction of the wrath of God. He took in himself the wrath that was meant for his people. And that gift of the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that he offers is received by turning to him and saying, I'm sorry, thank you, please forgive me and come into my life to make me a new kind of person. I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for coming to live and die and rise for me. Please come into my life. Be my savior, my Lord, the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. You don't do anything. You, you look to him. You trust in him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may the urgency of eternal matters mark us. May we be jealous for the glory of God. That the peoples would praise Him. The peoples would worship Him. Our neighbors, our friends, our city, the nations. And Lord, when we are ourselves aloof, indifferent. Would you call us back? We are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Take our heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it to thy courts above. Don't let us drift too far or too long into indifference to the things of God. May we remember, worship, adore, Follow our great creator, sustainer, ruler, father, savior, and judge the great, the one and only God of heaven and earth. Lord, if there's any friends here today for whom the gospel has never had a sense of urgency, would you draw them right now? to see that today is a day of grace. Today is a day of salvation. The arms of God, as we sang, are open wide to those who humbly come to confess themselves a sinner, to affirm who you are and what you've done in Jesus, and who humbly ask Draw them today to put their faith, their hope in Jesus. And we will pray this in his glorious name and for his sake. Amen.